Uh, it's it's more like every time we've ever done this. All right, welcome to episode 142 of the Rollo and Slappy Show. Today is April 29th, 2019. I am Rollo McFlugel, and with me is Slappy Jones 2, and you are both from McFlugel.com. Show notes, fate. Ah, man. Show notes. Oh, well. Take it from me, Slappy, since I can't do it. We're going yeah. live. <laughs> oh, wait, what? No, right. no, no not we're not live. live. We're just, okay. Yeah, we're just not going to We'll, we'll do it live. All right. Um, what were you, what, what were you even saying? Show notes page? Yeah. Flugel.com slash 142. Uh, today we have a guest from Tasting Anarchy. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Thanks, guys. So I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you, you guys. Um, I was telling Rallo, I listened to your show a little bit. I learn more about wine from your show than anywhere because in my entire life, I've probably drank about 10 glasses of wine. So I'm probably not the most interesting guy to talk <laughs> to when it comes to wine. I mean, you know, that's how Mason and I were up until maybe two years ago. Maybe, maybe yeah, about two, about three years ago, probably we had, we were beer guys and yeah. um, this never really cared about wine or anything like that until Mason knew I was moving to Texas. You know, I'm from, I'm from California originally, but I, I was out in Virginia and uh, he knew I was moving to Texas and he was like, well, I want a good excuse to, you know, keep talking every week because we're good friends. And, uh, and he's like, well, you, you've been kind of wanting to like switch off of drinking as much beer as you're drinking. And I was drinking way too much beer. And, uh, and he's like, you know, if you want to switch to wine, let's start exploring wine together. And that's kind of how the show got started. Like we didn't really know anything. We both had one style of wine we liked. And since then we've branched out to a, a lot more. Pretty cool. Yeah. I um I like cigars and wine and cigars seem like they would go together mm-hmm. and uh you know the subtleties in wine I'm sure is similar with cigars and I always wanted to like wine but I and yeah. it's not that I dislike it I just don't drink it. Yeah. I, like, I drink a beer or a scotch or something. Yeah. Um, so, me a big cigar guy. Oh yeah. Yeah, he he's he, yeah. I I used to smoke them with him when I was when we were both like in our early 20s but uh it, it I started dating a different girl and she hated the way oh, that I yeah. tasted afterwards. So I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, and I just, I just stopped smoking. <laughs> no, it's such a relaxing, enjoying it is. hobby. Yeah. And you sit there for an hour with someone and you're forced to talk. And usually uh-huh. my libertarian ideas come up in conversation. So it's, oh, yeah. uh, it's good stuff. It is. Yeah. I've, um, I mean, I'm nowhere near, I guess I'm between you and slappy with my, uh, with my wine abilities and, and drinking, uh, being of Italian heritage, as my mom likes to say, uh, we're into the Dego reds. So, <laughs> so the, the dry red wines is, is, is where it's at for me. I, I've yeah. more recently tried to get into, uh, some of the white wines, uh, but anything sweet, I'm just like, well, yeah, uh, well, I, I can't. That's kind of a tough one with with whites too, because uh, so many mass market whites are, for lack of a better way of putting it, they're girl wines. They're for you know girls' night out or whatever, and uh, they do make them overly sweet. And and also American styles of a lot of of a lot of not just wine, but American style of a lot of things are sweeter in general, uh, beer included, uh, because Americans do tend to have a sweeter palate, and. Uh, like for example, I, Mason and I've talked about this. I think on the show before. Uh, their uh, lambics are a popular mm-hmm. Belgian style, and American lambics or European lambics that are made for the American market usually have syrup added to them, or often do. Maybe not usually, but huh. 
uh, and they're made a lot sweeter than they would otherwise be. Now, are lambics open fermentation? Uh, they can be, and but usually, yes, usually it's wild yeast and yeah. uh, and done open. But it, it just depends on who's making it. Hmm. That's interesting. Then with the uh, the IPA craze kind of mm-hmm. pushing against that, which I wish didn't exist because yeah no, I, i'm not against ipas no, i like ipas I, I i i don't mind you know when it's the summer spring nice weather out i'll have an ipa or two but i, I i'm very seasonal with my mm-hmm. uh beer drinking at least is I, yeah summers i want lighter summers, crisper stuff i need a nice cold pilsner in the summer yeah winter winter i want a stout porter yeah. uh you know something heavier maybe a, even a you know the belgian stuff yeah yeah, I get it. Uh, you know, for uh, a night, well, summer's coming up, and I've started switching a little bit to white. Although I'm drinking a, a red right now, but uh, what are you, you drinking know, right now? I'm drinking. It's called Sketch. It's from Texas. It is a actually. I can pull up my notes real quick because it is. Uh, it is. It's called Sketch, <laughs> but it's a it's a blend. It's a red blend from Texas. It is sixty five percent Tempranillo, twenty five percent. Uh, this one, I, I'm going to butcher this name because I can't say anything, but it's uh, Alicante Bouchette and 10% Petite Syrah. Hmm. And the method of, of making this one is pretty interesting. They do, so there's a, so with red wines, you know, they're, you, you usually, they're characterized as being uh, tannic. And uh, one of the ways that you can increase tannins in a wine during the winemaking process is called uh, bleed off. So what you end up doing is you take some excess juice out and then you go make a rosé or a white with that and you leave the rest of the juice in to absorb more of the tannins from the stems and skins of the grape and it'll be a, like a much uh, more tannic wine and it'll be a much like much richer in color and have a lot of the the different flavors that it gets from the skins and stems. So this one has a 30% bleed off so they took 30% of the juice out and they made Presumably, I don't know what they did with it, but they, I assume they made a white out of it. And uh, the rest is what is in this bottle. Hmm. Nice. That's such a Yeah, so Let blended me. wine. Now, all right, this is this shows you my wine knowledge. Uh-huh. Something like a uh, Cabernet. Yeah. Right, that's a style. No. So Cabernet no. is a grape type. Uh, okay. Now, most Cabernet Sauvignons in the United States are... 80 to 90% Cabernet Sauvignon and the rest is something else. Um, so most of them are blends. Yeah. Mo- most wine is a blend okay. just because when you think about the process of making wine, uh, you can't, you can't not fill a barrel. Uh, you can't have like open space in it. So mm-hmm. uh, if you, if let's say you fill 60 barrels and, um, and you're putting them out to age in, in Oak or whatever. And the last barrel, you only have enough to fill it halfway. Well, what do you do with it? You, you fill it with something else and then, um, so that then you get a little bit of something else. But that's actually called a co-ferment uh, when they're when they're fermented together. Um, but then once you have it, when it's done, you've got a wine with a, with one grape has a particular structure, and sometimes it's not going to be well balanced. And uh, so they'll take so like Petite Syrah is a good example of this, which is in this blend. Petite Syrah adds a lot of uh, aggressive structure to things. It, it can it can also help smooth that out depending on what's going on. But um, you'll you'll add in certain other types of grapes to complete the structure. What they do in the United States, though, typically for like a California Cabernet Sauvignon, it's really not to 
structure it if it's a cheap one. It's usually just to save a little bit of money. So what mm-hmm. they'll do sometimes is they'll buy like some cheap, so they're like Valley floor grapes. So like, you know, where you, you want to have, where you're planting your grapes, you want to have really good drainage, but, but grapes will grow pretty much anywhere. They're kind of, they're kind of a weed. And this is one of the reasons why they're planted in rocky soil traditionally is because you can't grow food there. So, hmm. um, so they do tend to put a lot more energy into fruit production when they're in rocky soil. But if you uh, trim it correctly and, and care for them correctly, you can also get very high yields out of places like uh, – a good example of this is Texas High Plains, which is just all big, flat uh, grasslands, and they grow tons and tons and tons of grapes there. And a lot of that traditionally in Texas, and by traditionally, I mean like back in the 70s, was then sold to fill out box wine right. or big jug wine or something like that. It was they get the majority of their grapes from where it says they're from, like California or somewhere with prestige. And then they'll just add in this other stuff just to kind of fill it out. It's still going to have alcohol. It's still going to add something to it. But for the most part, they're not going to give a lot of character to the wine. Uh, and that it's a good way to kind of increase your volume by, you know, between 15, 10 and 15%. And, if, and you know, 10, 10 15% uh, volume increases pretty significant when you're making thousands of bottles sure. of wine. So uh, they'll, they'll do that. But uh, typically when something is marketed as a Cabernet Sauvignon, they are trying to give you a presentation of the Cabernet Sauvignon great. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're marketing something as a blend, they're trying to do something else. They're painting a more complex. I see. Flavor. That makes sense. Yeah. And so like a Mer- like these are the terms I hear. So Sauvignon, is that what you said? So and Cabernet Sauvignon is and a Blanc, a too, right? Yeah. The Cabernet Blanc is one of the parents of Cabernet Sauvignon. But Cabernet or Sauvignon Blanc is a white grape varietal. Right, right. And it makes oh. a uh, really crisp, dry white wine. It's very good, very citrusy, kind of like a cider almost. So is that almost the same grape, or not even close? Because one's no, they're not red, they're not, and one's yeah. green, yeah. And white, or well, whatever. Well, Cab- Cabernet Sauvignon is uh, parented by two grapes. It's parented by Sauvignon Blanc, which is a white, hence the Blanc, and right. then uh, the other one is Cabernet Franc. And Cabernet Franc is a French uh, grape, and. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of Cabernet Franc, actually. I think that the Cabernet Francs are are super good. And they're, they're used a lot in uh, Bordeaux blends. Uh, and uh, But they, they at some point, I think in the 1700s, it's, it's a relatively new grape, actually. Uh, they crossed those two, and they got Cabernet Sauvignon, which has become you know the champion of California, pretty much. That, that and Zinfandel are, are big in California. And Zinfandel is another grape? I'll stop yeah. asking these questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Zinfandel is a Croatian grape. Okay. And Concord's, now, Concord's a grape. <laughs> it, it is a grape, and you can make wine out of it, but uh, people don't typically. And it's not um, vitiviniferous, which is the European grape varietal that's usually used to make wine. It's a, a different grape uh, from a different family. And and you can make wine out of it. People do, It's but it's typically not. Is that like cheap wine? No. They, they, even cheap wine, they use they use usually uh, vitiviniferous. It's just usually lower quality grapes. Right. But uh, they will make a wine out of Concord really for fun just because it's interesting. You can. Yeah. It's apparently – I've never had it. It's apparently ungodly sweet. I was going to guess it would yeah. probably be really sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when you're making jelly and stuff out of it. <laughs> I don't know. But if you like that flavor, that's that's – from what I understand, it just tastes exactly like grape jelly. Huh. Well <laughs> – <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you, that's what you're into. So one of the things I wanted to add, because this, this conversation, it kind of 
it kind of piqued my interest in something because mm-hmm. I know you're big on the local Texas wine and yeah. you, you, you also stress that wherever you live, you know, check out the local wines cause it's got, yeah. got their own features and, and you bring up a term, uh, I believe it's terroir. Yeah. And I want you to talk about that. And also, cause I'm from slapping and I are from Pennsylvania and, mm-hmm. uh, there's know, some vineyards I, here, isn't there? Yeah, yeah there's actually a ton. Chad's of Ford, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a ton of vineyards around me, like yeah, Chad, yeah, way closer than even Chad's Ford. And um, I've always, I don't know, I've always kind of stuck my nose up to Pennsylvania wines because they mm-hmm. tend to be like, as my brother and I call them, like potpourri wines. Yeah, at least, at least the ones we've had. But yeah. I'm wondering, since I also live in the mushroom capital of the world, mm-hmm. given that this. This the spent mushroom soil is at a discount since it's so abundant and everywhere. I, I have yeah. no idea. I have to start checking this out. But I wonder if they if they use that soil around here and what kind of uh, what kind of a flavor that would impart or what kind, yeah. how that would how that would affect the wine because I, I feel like a kind of a mushroomy loamy kind of taste for a wine uh, might go well. Yeah. Well, you know, a, a good a good mushroomy kind of loamy tasting wine is a Pinot Noir from uh, the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Those, those mm. a lot of times have kind of a mushroomy flavor to it, and and a little more earthy, mm. uh, and they're they're very good. I don't I don't know usually grapes. So ter- I'll explain terroir real quick. So terroir is. Um, this is something that Mason and I actually ask every time we have like a wine grower or a winemaker on. We ask them about terroir, and it the definition of it is going to vary, very, very, it's going to vary widely. So um, basically it is a combination of the, the soil, the environment, the, the amount of sun it gets, the types of weather that you have, uh, the, the bacteria that live on the grapes, the bacteria that live in the soil and the uh, flora and fauna that are also in the area and the way that the grape growers care for the grapes, because that is also a traditional thing. So in a lot of places, they care for the grapes very differently than they do in the new world, like America or Australia or somewhere like that. Um, and also some people will add in what the winemakers do as part of terroir, because that is also going to affect the flavor. And so it's a lot of it is, Part of it is like scientific because it does have to do a lot with what is on the grapes and in the soils and weather and things like that that can be measured. And other parts of it are a little bit more like mystical or romantic. And it has to do more with the tradition of the people there and how they make it and why, what tradition they're following. You know, some guy in Bordeaux has had this land in his family for four or 500 years sometimes, and they're making wine roughly the same way. And that translates into the wine. And then you even have in places, in some places you have uh, wine cultures. Like, you know how you have a, a yeast culture for sourdough bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, in some places they do have a wine culture and this is usually for fortified wines, which is wine mixed with liquor um, that they've, they have this culture that has been going for a hundred plus years. And they all they they take off part of the wine and then they add more fresh grapes to yeah. it. So the fermentation continues, and it's it's been going for a long long time. It's usually very alcoholic and um, very expensive, but very interesting too. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. And so, that's that's kind of what plays into terroir. So it, it's it's yeah. kind of a combination of things. 
Okay. Yeah. It makes, it makes sense. Um, which is pretty neat because it, it, I mean, you really get the full experience of everything that goes into yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and you know, in the terroir of, of America is, it is the same things, the environment and all that sort of stuff, but it's also the terroir of not giving a shit what the Europeans are doing. <laughs> so like Americans will do anything. You go to different places in America and they'll talk about different things. You go to California, particularly like Napa, and they will talk your ear off about sanitary practices. And that's part of the culture of that part of California. It produces a very specific type of wine. So we even, we do have our own culture here in America, but a lot of it, and this comes across in our beer culture too, is that in America, we do things the way that we want to do things and we're not afraid to just try it differently. And that comes through in a lot of the wine. You know, and sometimes they want to also tip their hat to it. You know, actually speaking of Pennsylvania, not too far away from you in southern New Jersey, they mm-hmm. make world-class Bordeaux blend styles. I, was say, I know there's a ton of vineyards in South Jersey. Yeah, I've yeah, been doing they make I've been good to a few wine. there. Yeah, yeah. I've had good experiences in, in mm-hmm. South Jersey. I've only been in South Jersey vineyards. Yeah. But, They're all yeah. over in South Jersey. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, they have a hard time marketing because it's Jersey, but (laughs) they produce very good wine. And oftentimes it's a very good value, but they also do really interesting things. So there is a, they're either in Jersey or Maryland. I can't remember exactly where, but there's a, there's a vineyard or wine, a winery in, in somewhere over there that hops their wine. And there's a couple other places that hop their wine too, but it's just in, in the States, this may be a tradition or something that happens in other parts of the world, but in the States, they they'll just be like, look, let's just take half of our wine and just try something different. And if it's not good, it's not good. Do you actually yeah. get a hop? To, I'm assuming you're talking about hops like beer hops. Yeah. Yeah. Beer hops. Do you actually get that flavor in the wine. Uh, I haven't had one yet. I want, I want to try it, but I imagine that That's you interesting. do. I'm yeah. curious. I'm curious to know what type of hops they're using. Cause you, you even hops are vi- very widely as well. You sure. Mean, if you get an IPA that's made with like soap hops, I, I hate soap hops. They're like my least favorite of the hops. But if you get like a really good citrus hop in it, uh, you're going to get a really good flavor. And it also, it's the the way that they use hops, if you, they're fresh, if they're freeze dried, that's mm-hmm. going to make a big difference. Uh, if it's dry hopped versus wet hopped, uh, there's, there's a lot of different things that are going to impart different flavor to it. So I, I'm curious to know what they do and you know, what they've tried and what it, and what they're trying to get out of it as well. I think that'll be, that, that's very interesting. Yeah. I would imagine that hopping your wine would make the, uh, the powdered wigs on Europeans head spin on top of their head. <laughs> I, I think, I think maybe it probably all the traditionalists probably, but I think that, uh, so in France in particular, one of, one of the big market shifts is happening is, uh, the Chinese are coming in and buying up large old estates and uh, most of it's like a prestige thing, but I think because things are kind of shaking up there economically, they do have a lot of new winemakers uh, that are younger that are willing to try something different. Uh, and it's just, it's the economic disruption there is pretty intense right now. And that plays a lot into what people want to make and what they want to do and what they're trying to, what they're trying to get across in their wine. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's, you know, to sound sappy, it's an art form. Like they, they put a lot of work into it and it's a, and a lot of times the winemaker is trying to get something in particular across in the wine, some sort of flavor, some sort of memory trigger, like that kind of thing. Very similar to cigar blenders. Exactly. Exactly like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can see that as kind of a bittersweet and just kind of the the nature of the world changing how the world's getting smaller with the internet and, mm-hmm. and travel and transportation that in one sense, it is good to have different people crossing cultures and, and sharing and blending ideas. But at the same time, you also don't want to like lose out on those traditional things that have existed for, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's things that stand the test of time. Do you, well, do you notice many, uh, do, do you think that there's ever going to be a situation where they kind of do lose the traditional stuff and like there's um, pushing one way or the other? I don't, I don't think so. And I, the reason I don't think so is because uh, as, as experimental as the States are, they are still always tipping their hat to Europe and they make a lot of the wines here are made in the style of Europe. So there's a lot of places that make uh, Bordeaux blends uh, Bordeaux style blends. There's a lot of places that even use Bordeaux yeast. So they'll get the yeast shipped in and use that to start their, start their wines. They won't use the local yeast because they're trying to get whatever the Bordeaux yeast has. And um, so I, I don't think that's going to happen. One thing that's really interesting and exciting is so Grapes are from Central Asia originally. And so uh, the earliest, I think the earliest evidence of winemaking is in, is in the country of Georgia. And they do it very differently. They make their wine in, well, they do it, you know, they stomp on it with their feet, like, you know, like you always see in like the old mm-hmm. European pictures. Stuff. But then they, they usually ferment them the way that like Romans and Greeks and stuff did it in these gigantic clay pots that are buried underground. And that imparts some other types of flavor to it. So now there's several winemakers in, I think, Oregon now that are adopting that practice and trying to do something new, new for us, very, very old for them. I mean, this is a 10,000 year old practice. So I don't think we're ever going to lose. We may lose the direct lineage, but I don't think we're going to ever lose a style. Uh, Do they still make wine like that? Yeah. Like in the, yep. the amphora, like put mm-hmm. it in the ground. That's yep. really cool. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> most of Eastern Europe and maybe parts of Western Europe, most people have, uh, make their own wine at home mm-hmm. or, or beer. Yeah. Uh, I, I've heard that. Yeah. And uh, even, you know, my wife, she didn't do it. She lived in an apartment. She's from Ukraine, but even in Ukraine, uh, people are, are making kvass, which is like a very low alcohol beer, um, and other types of children's beer at home if you live in a, in an area that grows a lot of grapes down by like Odessa or uh, well, it used to be part of Ukraine, but now it's, I guess, part of Russia, uh, Crimea, they, Mm -hmm. they do a a lot of people just grow it in their yards or nearby and make it in their basements. And it's not good necessarily, but it's, they just, everybody does it because it's part of what you drink. Yeah. That's, that definitely uh, was a tradition with a lot of Italians coming over. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cause I know, and, and just in Philly, there's a big Italian population and I'm a lot of my, uh, Harris is Italian and my, you know, great grandfathers yeah. made wine in their basement too. They had, my mom would tell the stories of going downstairs. They had the, the barrels down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, you know, that's how Franzia got started in, uh, Italian immigrants who were in, um, California and the, the lady Franzia, whatever her name was, she, she was just like, look, we, this is what we do. And she just planted a whole bunch of grapes and, and that was how it got started. It ended up getting bought by these large conglomerates later mm-hmm. on, but. And then by car camp it. Yeah, exactly. Then by Car Campit, right? <laughs> it was owned by Coca Cola for a while, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, I, 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 I like to, you know, when I when I get very snooty about food, like preferences and stuff, it's normally me just like having fun. 
yeah and just and just doing it to to mess around i don't really actually care that much and i don't care like franzia i don't think i've ever had it but i'm completely indifferent about it if you want to have franzia knock knock your stocks off (laughs) but but mixing franzia or any wine and ice and Lacroix, (laughs) and i like Lacroix too and i like wine and i like ice but yeah that combination is just unfathomable to me well, you, you should try it. It's a it's a spritzer. I mean, it's it's a it's actually a very common German drink. Um, okay, I was gonna say it yeah. kind of sounds like it, it could go. Yeah, it's it's a spritzer. It it's not even that unusual. It just sounds weird when Carl talks about it. But because uh, I don't think he even knew it was a spritzer. I think he thought he invented it was his it. invention. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I've done that before. How about in the stadium like, cup, though? Yeah, well, that that maybe is different. I'm not sure. <laughs> Carl but, also thinks he invented yeah. the sandwich where you put peanut butter on one side and jelly on the other. Right. right. See, I invented yeah. I invented a better peanut butter sandwich. So it's peanut butter on both sides and then jelly in the middle. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I thought you were going to drink a Concord grape wine with it. <laughs> right, right. Or just like dip it, dip it in a glass of Concord grape wine. <laughs> yeah. All right. So so speaking of ruining things. Um, Let's, because you guys, not only do you guys talk about wine in your podcast, you're also, you know, as your name suggests, Tasting Anarchy. Yeah. Talk about liberty. So, um, and one of the way I just want to say this, one of the way, one of the things I really like about you guys is that, you know, when you do your episodes uh, and, and you bring up the liberty angle, it's, you know, I, no one can ever question your, uh, your, your, how liberty minded you are or anything, mm-hmm. but you don't, you do a very good job of like, presenting it in a way that's not ramming it down yeah roads and it's like that comes across really really well Um, Well, that's kind of the goal usually is so this is i think like the third generation and even you guys and uh and like the friends against government and sounds like liberty all mr sue all well mr sue is more political but there's i think this kind of like third generation is is what i'm calling it that are more you've got the Tom Woodses, you've got the Bob Murphys, you've got, you know, um, Peter Schiff, like all of these people who are, who are very academic and very smart and very, very, very valuable. But unless you already care about those topics, the shows are not necessarily going to speak to you directly. Whereas if you like wine, if you're new to wine, you might be interested in our show and we can also show you how much government, you know, this is the tagline that we came up with, how much government is in your drink. There is an enormous amount of government in every glass of wine you drink, every can of beer you have, every fifth of whiskey. There is oodles and oodles of government and it does affect, and this is a great way I think to talk to people who are not otherwise interested in this. Um, it's a good way to communicate market distortion to them. And uh, which is something most libertarians are familiar with is, is government market distortion and the, and also just the liberty of being able to do what you want and, and enjoy what you enjoy. And I think that is kind of the, been the goal of the show is to, is to not be so aggressive with it, but to kind of give examples of here's a, here's a, a, a time when there's a drink you enjoy and the government is heavily involved in it. And a really good example briefly is um, 
is the alcohol level in drinks in Virginia, for example. So Virginia has a two-tier taxing system on alcohol. And there is a, a cidery that is in Richmond, I think. And the lady who started that is this genius lady, and she's super cool because there's a lot of species of apples that were chopped down and believed to be extinct. They were chopped down during Prohibition uh, because cider was actually much more popular pre-Prohibition in the United States than it is now. And pre-Prohibition, you know, they, they were making a lot of cider and stuff, and there was a, a whole bunch of different varieties of cider-making apples. And when Prohibition was passed, the government came through and just chopped them all down. And you know, thank God for the Catholic Church, because the only reason we saved grapes in the United States was because it was a sacramental wine for Jews and Catholics. And so there was there was a few places that were still able to keep old vines. Um, and uh, and that actually, you know, is, is very helpful in other reasons. But um, the this lady who has a cidery, she goes out and she hikes around Virginia and the Appalachians and stuff and and finds these apples that somebody at some point threw out and an apple tree grew and they thought these apples were extinct. She's got four or five varieties that she saved and, and planted in her orchard uh, and is making um, wines out of them. But <clears throat> that's not what, where it, it gets crazy is that, so Virginia has a two tiered system. So I don't remember exactly the percentages, but I think it's, I think it's about 12%. If you make an alcoholic drink up to 12%, you're, ta <clears throat> you're taxed at like 10% or something. I'm, I'm making up numbers. I don't know exactly right, right. the numbers. And then when you go over that percentage of alcohol, your tax goes up to like 30%. <laughs> and so she made her ciders and she was making them in a interesting style. So she took um, the style of making champagne and applied that to cider. Huh. And so she was making these sparkling ciders that were high alcohol, like 14, 15%. And, um, and her first batch came out and she sold a lot of it and went to go pay her taxes. And the government said, no, 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 no. You don't owe us 10%. You owe us 30%. That is not a apple cider. That is an apple wine. And apple wines are taxed at a higher percentage. And so fortunately, she had investors that were able to help cover, cover the cost. But that first year and her first batch, she made no money. She was in debt to the government because of it. And as a result, she changed her practices, and now she makes ciders that are under 10%. So anybody who was very keen on that first batch and wanted this champagne-style apple cider is now robbed of the opportunity to enjoy a unique, interesting cider. And she had to revamp her entire process to make it a lower-alcohol drink in order to come under the threshold and still be able to make market. Uh, because I mean, a thirty percent increase of price, or well, I guess it was twenty percent increase, increase of price. Yeah. yeah, is is a substantial increase. If your margins are more than twenty percent, you're doing well. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's. I mean, normally uh, <clears throat> we would expect things like, well, they made it more expensive. You know, they restricted who could buy it, where you could buy it. But man, they just completely wiped something off the market. Something that oh, yeah. sounds really interesting. Yeah, and and went over. And we well. would have we would have it otherwise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is this is 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 very much part of American alcohol culture in general. Is in in places like France, for example, lower alcohol wines are considered more valuable and um, higher quality. In America, we tend to uh, consciously or unconsciously um, value high alcohol in things, and this is a is a relic of prohibition because during prohibition, if you only have a limited opportunity to get drunk, 
you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck. So you're going to go for things that are high alcohol, like liquor. And it took a long time for the culture to come back around and, and to liberate. And this was, I guess it was even until the Jimmy Carter, I think administration, there was only like 17 breweries in the country. Right. Uh, and there were all these huge regional, like huge, you know, national breweries. And, that end up getting liberalized. And now we have thousands and thousands of, of breweries and you anywhere from microbreweries to regional breweries to national breweries. And, uh, and now the market has opened up for people like me who, who I do tend to enjoy lower alcohol beers in, in general wine, wine, I'm kind of indifferent. Um, you know, it's a, it's a flavor thing, not necessarily an alcohol level thing, but I would much rather have like a session, like a session Saison or something like that. And at like 4% alcohol, then some sort of really heavily hopped IPA at 9%. If I'm going to be sitting around with, you know, a bunch of libertarians, for example, and, and drinking for five hours and, and just talking about libertarian stuff, I would much rather have that lower alcohol that has a flavor, does have, get me a little bit buzz, loosens, uh, loosens up, up the conversation a little bit. But, um, the culture ha- in, in America has really been driven toward high alcohol and, and there's a, a good example of this coming up again. Um, I, I covered this a little bit in uh, one of my mini episodes that I don't think has been released yet. There is a 600% increase in the beer tax coming up in Nebraska. Nice. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't really seem like that much to the average consumer. It's usually, it's about 10 cents a glass uh, or a pint. But when you look at what a, uh, a regional brewer and a microbrewery is producing this, this does have a huge impact on their business and it, it changes their decisions. And when you are faced with this type of, of a slimming margin, you're going to change your business practices into things that are a little more generic and a little bit more mass marketable. And I think that this is what we're going to see in states like Nebraska, where they're where they're going to switch. They have a very healthy microbrewery uh, movement there right now because they do have relatively low alcohol taxes. Um, but with this six hundred percent increase in alcohol tax, I think you're going to see it really uh, condense and become uh, very bland over time. And this does happen anywhere where alcohol taxes are increased. Is you end up getting a consolidation of the market and a standardization of the styles that are available. Do you know what the, uh, what's the reason for the tax increase? Was it just, yes, they're just trying to raise money. Were they trying to like a so, tax? Yeah. So the reason that they're doing this is so Nebraska is, is largely a farm state and mm-hmm. they right now have some of the highest property taxes in the country. And be, when you, when you go to like a farmer who owns, owns, you know, a thousand acres or whatever, that's, that's a hefty tax on them. And they, they don't have exemptions for uh, farmers or any sort of reduction, I don't think. And uh, so the proposal is to phase out portions of the property tax. So just to give them a reduction in property tax and uh, raise money by increasing the alcohol tax because they see it as something new and, and a vice. You know, people don't usually, if you're not a drinker, yeah. you really care if the, if the tax on alcohol goes up. It's easy to go after alcohol and tobacco. Yeah, exactly. It, it, they, you know, they see it as kind of bad, and and, um, and so they see this as as a way, and and then they try to you know excuse it or whatever. What I thought was very interesting though about the the senator who is pushing this through is not once did he mention cutting spending as a way to mm-hmm. alleviate property tax, and and it's very telling of government in general is that 
whenever something like a tax increase comes up, it's it's very, very rare that anybody ever suggests cutting spending as a way to cut taxes. They're either in favor of unilaterally cutting taxes and then uh, building up debt as a way to pay for it, or they're interested in increasing a tax on some sort of vice that not everybody has. Well, taking taking stuff away from people, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in the statist point of view, uh, isn't good for getting reelected. Yeah, no, that's you true. Know, so, yeah, <clears throat> why Republicans run on small government and increase the government every time? Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And uh, I believe that Nebraska is a is a fairly heavy Republican state. Uh, they do. The, this senator in particular, it seems from the the what I've read and the language is that he's not necessarily opposed to alcohol, but he does see it as a vice. And that is also a cultural relic of prohibition in the United mm-hmm. States that, you know, we, we uh, Lysander Spooner, one of the great anarchist heroes, wrote a, a pamphlet called Vices Are Not Crimes. And in that he does specifically talk about alcohol is that people who abuse alcohol have a problem. But they, it, but it is no more. It's not a crime to have a problem, and it's not a crime to want to enjoy a mind-altering substance. In and I mean, I, I, I don't remember who I stole this from, but like altering your consciousness is so important to human beings that every single night when we fall asleep, we trip balls. Right, and and that's very true. Is that every culture has some sort of intoxicant. Every and single one. <laughs> every single culture. Even some of the an- even some animals do have intoxicants. There's jaguars who are eating ayahuasca all the time in, in the jungle. My and cat likes catnip. Yeah, exactly. Like, like elves, I mean, we're all, elephants get drunk. We're um, all drinking coffee in the morning. Yeah, exactly. But they they've categorized it and they've decided that you know, along with many many drugs or uh, you know psychedelics and and intoxicants in other forms, they've also decided that. Um, Suppressants like alcohol are uh, are a problem, and it's okay to treat them as uh, an enemy. But you know, when, even when you are increasing something by only ten cents a glass, you are going to reduce consumption, and you're also going to alter decision making. This is mm-hmm. you know, value is subjective, and ten cents may. I use this example uh, before. Is you know how like when you go into the ninety nine cent store. And you buy like a 99 cent spatula or something like that. You know, you could go to the grocery store and you could get a a dollar 20 spatula. It's only 20 cents difference, but people go to the 99 cent store and they buy it or the dollar tree or whatever. There's a perception and a psychological perception when you go to the 99 cent store and you get something for 99 cents, even though you're only saving 20 cents and it's negligible, the perception of it being that much less makes you take action and buy that product. And, And through that action, you're displaying that you value that deal or the 20 cents or whatever it is that you're valuing um, over going and just getting it at your convenience for a dollar 20. So in the same case, if you have a, a glass of beer that is four ninety nine and you get a 10 cent increase and now it's $5 and nine cents, that may be the difference between you deciding to purchase that beer and you deciding to purchase a finger of list of whiskey. Yeah. So it, it, even though it is not, that big of a difference and people go, Oh, it's 10 cents. It's not when, when the price changes on the menu, that is going to alter your decision-making Absolutely, and it's going to not necessarily yours or whatever, but it's going to alter the consumer's decision-making. And so when they think it's only a 10% increase, they are not taking into account that this may completely change business for brewers, particularly small brewers. Well, one of the things that popped out too, is that I was thinking about most, 
bars and restaurants that I've been to, they don't, I mean, beers are not priced. Uh, they're priced on the, like at, uh, on dollars. So it's like yeah. $5, $6, $7. It's not $6 and 25 cents. Right. $6. So, so for them to make a jump from, uh, having it, uh, intervals of a dollar to mm-hmm. now having to go to like, and 10 cents, I, yeah. I don't know if that's enough to make, make them be like, that, that makes us not feel that great. So maybe they, maybe they don't raise the price of beer yeah. to keep it at like $6 a, a, a pint or something, but then they have, they raise prices somewhere else or they have yeah. to eat that 10 cents of profit. Right. It goes to taxes. So it really just like, it really, that little thing, you're right. It's 10 cents doesn't sound like a lot, but it really kind of can complicate things. Really yeah. And, and it's, I mean, it's, and it's cumulative too. I, I've got some, some numbers here that I'll read out that I, I read out on our mini episode. Um, but like for, for a, uh, a microbrewery, so a microbrewery, according to federal law, is somebody who produces um, less than uh, 465 gallons of beer a year. And so this price increase, and this is just state taxes, doesn't take into consideration the federal tax on it. Um, this is a price increase from them paying, if they, if they produce the max, this is an increase from $144.15 to $503.70. Now, over the course of a year, again, it, it doesn't sound that big to you. Uh, but to a small business owner or somebody who's doing it out of their garage and just and is selling a very small amount to the local bar or whatever, that is that is a big increase in cost. And and when you get up to a larger size brewery, so like a regional a regional brewer is somebody who produces uh, 186 million gallons of beer or less, which sounds like a lot. And it's really not that much. So, uh, you, you know, when you get into like really big breweries, they're producing way, way more than that. But for regional brewers like that, like uh, think, think um, Green Flash, for example, is a it was a regional brewer in California for a long time. They were in Southern California. They they've since expanded, and uh, I think they moved their well, they moved their brewery to Virginia Beach for a while, and then it closed down because it was some sort of scandal. And I think they removed it to like Omaha or somewhere like that. But Again, when they when you're moving a brewery, this is another decision making thing. Is when you're seeing this tax increase, if you're reg- if you're considered a regional brewer, you may change your mind where you're going. So for a regional brewer, if you're producing 186 million gallons of beer a year, you're going from paying 57 million dollars a year in taxes. I think, or did I do that right? Uh, maybe it's maybe it's five million seven hundred sixty thousand dollars to paying. Uh, twenty five million six hundred sixty eight dollars a year. So that, I mean, that's a huge, huge jump for you. Yeah, and and that's that's for a regional brewer. That's not even for like Budweiser, right? So for something like Budweiser, who produces you know hundreds of hundreds of millions of gallons of beer a year, and can kind of absorb that cost spread out over the entire country, they don't necessarily have to raise their prices, and. You know, Budweiser does compete with with these small breweries by uh, they purchase brands from smaller ones and they make different styles that are sold and they can absorb this cost mm-hmm. and and compete a little bit better on on just uh, economies of scale. And so maybe they move in. Like I think I think uh, Blue Moon is owned by Coors. Mm-hmm. So like let's say that you know Blue Moon is sort of a craft beer. I mean, it's, it's a little more crafty than like uh Miller high life or something like that. So you, you, you 
are now increasing people or making people's decisions for them a little bit. So they could get this local one that, that is really interesting and unusual and, and maybe risk that it's not very good, or they can get the, the standard Belgian wheat blue moon that tastes good when it has an orange peel in it. And you know that it tastes good when it has an orange in it and you're not taking any risk. And, and that 10 cent difference may make that decision for you. And well, it, not that much, but it could. Absolutely. I mean, we're, and we see this in the cigar industry right yeah. now. There's yeah. FDA. FDA is trying to get involved in premium cigars. Mm. And part of the reason they say this is, um, you know, with vaping getting popular, especially with high school kids and how there's flavors, well, cigars will often be described by the flavors of the tobacco, even though it's not flavored, it's just the tobacco taste. But they'll say something like it's nutty or coffee or chocolate or spice. Yeah. Um, and so they're saying they're saying that's marketing to kids. I've never seen high school kids walking around with premium hand rolled cigars. I no. mean, it's it's not their price point. It's not yeah. it's not you know it's an hour sometimes hour and a half long smoke. Yeah. They're not doing it, but they're they're putting these excise taxes on. It'll cost up to a quarter million dollars to put a new cigar on the market. The problem is every single year, and especially with these boutique brands who don't have giant tobacco farms. They buy tobacco from different places to blend it. They come out with new blends every year, which would be in, in order to get it on the American market would cost you another quarter million dollars. It's going to put them out of business because the yeah. big cigar manufacturers can handle that. Mm-hmm. Plus they often have the same blends, the same lines every yeah. year. Um, and we're, you know, we're talking about, like you said, with, with wine, it's an art. These are hand rolled or mm-hmm. hand picked tobaccos and it's going to crush the industry if these things go through. Yeah. Um, and that's just what government can do. And just even the threat with that being out there is keeping people from getting into the business. And I'm sure yeah. it's the same in the alcohol. If, if you're mm-hmm. worried about taxes going up, you're not going to open up a new brewery and try to compete with Budweiser. Yeah, no, yeah, it, it definitely is, especially with with the cost that's high and the and then you won't be able to hire as much labor to help out. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a it's a it is a big cost to companies. People don't really think of it that way because they're they see they say, well, somebody shows them, oh, it's only ten cents a glass. Whereas for the manufacturer, it's a it's a very large increase. And this is the difference between hiring two new people or hiring no new people or closing down or closing, right? yeah. Or, or selling out to Budweiser. I and mean, this exactly. is exactly, uh, you know, there a lot of these companies that are quote unquote micro brews or whatever, or craft breweries are, they did used to be craft breweries and they ended up getting purchased by Budweiser or Coors or somebody like that. Which, and, which is fine. Like that's yeah. their exit strategy. They built a business, they sold it. Yeah. But would they have had regulations and taxes not, not been the same? Exactly. Exactly. And that's, uh, and it's, it's hard to say. Um, I've met uh, cider makers that have sold out their companies. I met like the the guy who made um, you know you guys know Angry Orchard, right? Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the guy who who started Angry Orchard, he now has another cidery in Virginia called Bold Rock. Huh. Uh, and or uh, yeah, Bold Rock. That's right. And he also started the largest cidery in New Zealand. So he his dad owned a farm or something like that in New Zealand, and. Uh, he, his dad was going to sell the farm because it wasn't successful. And he was like, dad, just give me, give me five years. I'm going to put in orchards and I'm going to make cider. And his dad was like, okay, well, I'll give you five years. And so he did it. And he, and it be, ended up becoming the largest cidery in New Zealand. And he ended up selling out. Uh, are you guys familiar with the cider strongbow? Yeah. Yep. 
Okay, so he ended up selling his company to the company that owns Strongbow, and that's the largest cider conglomerate in the world. And uh, his plan was he was going to retire, and he moved to uh, – actually, I think he was just on vacation in upstate New York. And when he was there, he's like, wow, this is – I think might be the best cider country in the world. And so he started Angry Orchard up there. How about that? And a couple of years later, he sold it to some other big conglomerate. I'm not sure who, who owns it now. Um, and he's like, all right, this time I'm going to retire for sure. And he was taking a trip down to Virginia and he was up in the Appalachians and was like, holy cow, this is the best cider making country in the world. And he started bold rock and bold rock is huge in Virginia right now. And it's, and it's very quickly growing, gaining market share in, um, in, you know, the cider world, I guess I'm cider is cider is a huge growing alcoholic beverage. And, uh, and so this guy is that's just what he does. But like I, I can imagine somebody like that who's who sold his company multiple times and started over, if he was in a place where the, he was facing a six hundred percent increase in his taxes, he might consider taking that offer. Absolutely. Right. And and going like, you know what, I'll I'll go check out Washington and see what Washington cider's like. You know, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's even these little little changes the government does, mm-hmm. and you think it's not going to affect it, it can have just massive effects on it, it does on and global economies. Yeah, and that's kind of what we, you know, one of the things we try to convey in the show is try to paint a picture of of this. This is something that like most a lot of people do not care about the government, and and honestly, like that's kind of the way I would like it to go is people just to start, start ignoring it basically, but they don't really care what's going on and. And, and nor should they. I mean, it's it's a rational ignorance. So, like, why would why would you pay that much attention to what the government's doing when you have almost no control over it? Like, you have way more control over what cell phone you have than, and that's going to impact your life way more than the government in most cases. Uh, but even your cell phone, though, if you're very into cell phones, that's heavily impacted by the government. And if you're really into wine and just alcohol in general, that's what I'm trying to t- tell everybody on tasting anarchy in a little more subtle way is. Uh, this is something you care about. It is greatly, greatly affected by the government. Why don't you take a look at that? And and maybe that'll make you a little bit more interested in you know the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree on that. So I'd like to to take a little uh, step in a different direction. Sure. And help help us out with some uh, wine pairings. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're the you're the resident expert. <laughs> yeah. Um, Put you on the spot. Yeah. So, unprepared. Uh, I'll tell you, I don't pair wine really with anything. That's fine. I just drink it by itself most of the time. Uh, well, Although, sometimes, sometimes Russian food. You know what? No matter what you say, I'm going to believe you. So yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this isn't really a pairing, but what would you recommend for me? I said it before. I'm into the dry reds. Yeah. Um, so I like I like Cabernet Sauvignon. I like Chiani, and I also like Burgundy. Okay. So for a guy like me, um, likes those dry red wines. Um, what would you suggest as a white wine for me to, to try to okay. see if I like, um, I know it's, it's yeah. completely different, but knowing uh, that that's yeah. where I'm at, that's where my head is. Yeah. I'm very, I would, I would go with, you want to branch out a little bit into a dry white. Now, white wines are not going to be tannic. Tannins come from the skin and the stems of grapes and white wines, although they may come from a red grape, they are not, uh, they're not going to be red because the color comes from fermenting with the skins. Okay. So 
if you want to try, if you, if you know that there's something that you already like that also makes a white, you might try that. So for example, there are a lot of rosés made from Pinot Noir. So uh, if you, if you like Pinot Noir, you might try a rosé from Pinot Noir. Okay. Um, but I, I'm going to go with just traditional white varietals that I like because I have a similar palate to you when it comes to wine. I, I prefer the more bold uh, tasting red wines. Um, on a hot day, it, a, a nice Sauvignon Blanc chilled is great. It's dry. It is citrusy. Uh, it can be grassy. And uh, it's just very enjoyable cold, like next to the pool or out grilling or something like that, because it's a very cool, refreshing drink. It's not tannic. It's going to be a lot more viscous, so like kind of like slippery in the mouth. And it, it does have a lighter mouthfeel than most reds. Uh, but it, it's very good, and it's dry. And, and I think that that might be a good one to try. There's also, uh, not too far away from you, Virginia produces very, very good vignette. And uh, Vignet is going to be a little bit heavier mouthfeel. It's also going to have uh, a little spicier notes to it. It's very crisp. Um, There's also uh, a dry Riesling you might like. Uh, Yeah, I've I've had Riesling and I that was like the first one of the first times. So I was like, let me try that. And it wasn't bad. Yeah. So there's several different styles of Riesling. You can get uh, dry Riesling. And the drier, the better, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's also very good chilled, I think. This one's a little bit different that I'm going to give you next because it is, uh, it's usually off-sweet. It's usually not dry. and that, But it's very, very floral, which I, I like about it. Um, and has, uh, but it's also heavier. It's a heavy, it's really, it's just a very interesting wine, a little more meaty, I guess, than most white wines. And that's Albarino. And that is a Spanish varietal. They do it here in Texas, and I think they do it well here in Texas. They also, and actually, you're going to Childeberg. I'm bringing an, I'm bringing Albarino, so I'll let you try one. Oh, nice! Uh, awesome. it's, a, it's a really good one. This one, the one that I'm bringing, is actually Spanish, but uh, I think Texas does very good Albarinos as well. Uh, so that might be one to try. There's also a German varietal that is often sweet, but you might like it. It's um, Gewurztraminer. And it's uh, difficult to spell and difficult to say. Yeah, but- I, I was I was writing all these down, and I, and I <laughs> felt pretty good about all the spellings up until then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Vignier has a G in it. It's yeah. It's, it's also spelled weird, but uh, Gravetsteminer is some really ridiculously long word, uh, and I think it's very good. Uh, it's also kind of more floral. It can be very crisp. It's it's very it varies depending on who's making it because it can be off sweet, but. Um, there you can get the dry ones and I think the dry ones are, are very good. So I think for whites, that's that kind of covers the gambit of the ones that I like. Mason is a much bigger fan of whites than I am. Uh, and he typically drinks white. So I typically drink reds and then enjoy an occasional white. And usually I'm enjoying a white because it's something he recommended. Right. So you, you brought up uh Childerberg and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes, but okay. um, what would you pair with fruitcake? What would be the perfect wine? Because there will be fruitcake at Childerberg. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I want to, I want to, and, and since it's very wine themed at Childerberg, I want to make yeah. sure that people can, can maximize the fruitcake and the wine. I think that dessert is always best paired with a dessert wine. So dessert wines tend to be fortified or just high alcohol. And um, you could get a nice port. Uh, okay. You could also maybe, maybe, hmm. 
what would I do? A port would be good, I think. Uh, do do either one of you guys like uh, like cognac or? Um, oh yeah, I like cognac. Okay, so port is not mixed with cognac, but it is mixed with. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it's a it's a liquor made from grapes, and, and cognac is also made from grapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's it's basically it's it's Portuguese wine grape varietals. It depends on who's making it, mixed with a very high alcohol liquor. So you're usually at 20 to 25% alcohol. Uh, so it's, it's much higher than most wines. You usually drink a much smaller portion, but it's very, very, very sweet, but it's a different kind of sweet. It's more of a licory sweet. Yeah. So, that would Actually, this was like a joke saying it would be a fruitcake with wine, but it makes sense because I mean, yeah, fruitcake you drink with, or yeah, you drink it, you eat it with like a, a rum or a whiskey. Something yeah, like very, yeah. Very high out. Al- so yeah, the high alcohol mm-hmm. is, is sounds more appealing. Yeah. You, I mean, we could also do if we wanted to go. I mean, it would be sweet still, but it would be there's there's a Russian. Um, well, it's not Russian. It's actually made mostly in Moldova, but it's a Eastern European wine style that they use for communion called Cahor, and it is uh, there's also Cahor in France, which is where it got its name from, and it's it's usually Cabernet Sauvignon, but it's fermented to a much higher level. Uh, so it's usually 16 to 18%, uh, which is about 3 or 4%. Well, it's a California Cabernet Sauvignon can be like 14%. So it's usually about it's between 2 and 4% higher than most Capsovs. It is typically a lot sweeter, though. And it, it's not my favorite thing. My wife loves it. And um, so that, that one might be a good one to do with it. But I, I would go with like a port. Uh, I think that would probably be the best, a port. Awesome. And my last one, unless Slappy has some pairings that he wants, is uh, what would be the perfect wine for doing tractor things? Tractor things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, they make a lot of canned Don't ask him what tractor things are. <laughs> they make a lot of canned wines right now. Well, um, that's like a new up-and-coming thing. And I would go with – Actually, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I would say I would say like a canned wine because you know when when you're on a tractor, all those vibrations, mm-hmm. you, know, you don't want you don't want like your your wine glass to spill or anything like that. But you got you've got that very small opening on a in a can, and mm-hmm. just like you know a nice one. Typically, the canned wines are going to be crisp, refreshing whites, and um, sometimes sweeter whites. You're gonna you're, you're gonna have you know Sauvignon Blanc, but it's gonna be a lot of Chardonnay, Chardonnays, which is not my favorite thing. Um, you can get good Chardonnays, but they're the way the Americans make Chardonnay, I don't think is very good, but, uh, yeah. uh, but yeah, can, a nice canned wine, maybe a Sauvignon Blanc. Any, any high alcohol ones that you could kind of pour into the gas tank if you're running low on fuel? Boone's farm. Boone's farm. <laughs> Boone's farm. Uh, well, why don't you just grab a bottle of cognac? It's basically wine. It's just higher fermentation. Oh, perfect. <laughs> there you go. All right. I got one. If I was going to have a, um, uh, Nicaraguan Puro, Perdomo, uh, cigar, very bold. Yeah, what, bold. What's a good wine to go right. with it? So, so something like that is going to blow out your palate. Yeah. So what you want to go with is something really bold in wine. And I would go with like a California Lodi Zinfandel. So they're, they're going to be higher alcohol, but maybe 14, 14.5%. They're going to be, it's going to have a lot of uh, red fruit flavors. It's going to be very tannic, very uh, alcoholy, very hot, burning in your throat kind of thing. It's going to go, I think, really well with, like, typically Nicaraguan cigars are a lot more harsh. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to 
want to pair that harshness with something that's equally harsh that won't have to compete for palate access. So I would go with like a really bold California Zinfandel. I wrote that down. I might give it a try. All I right. thought you. I thought you said you weren't good with pairings. <laughs> well, off, those are off the top of my head. I, yeah, thought you were I mean, you're like, what would you do with like lamb with mint? And yeah. I, I, I don't know, Parmenier. I just throw something out. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's convincing to me. Yeah, so, that works because that's probably if I um, if I go out and look for wine, that's what I'm going to buy. I, I I think actually Rolo, since you like that Tempranillo after it was opened up, yeah. uh, I think you'd like I you probably like those Boulder Zinfandels from California too. Yeah, I mean, I was because I'm. Uh, one of the things, and it's funny because a couple of years ago, me talking about the color of the wine would have been like, why does that matter? But yeah, it was, it was like a really deep, yeah, uh, dark purple, which was, which was pretty nice. I like, yeah, they can get cool. They can get really cool. Actually, you know, if you, if you're ever, you know, actually, this could actually go, well, it wouldn't go well with a cigar that harsh, but if you're, if you get like a, a, like a Dominican cigar, that's a little bit lighter, more like on like vanilla flavors and stuff like that. Uh, if you get a, Carmenere from Northern Chile. Um, those are really interesting and they're super dark and they have a lot of uh, black pepper flavors. Hmm. And it, it's, it's really interesting. So I, I could think like kind of a lighter cigar. I, I always associate Dominican cigars as being lighter. Sure. Um, especially lighter, lighter than Nicaraguan. Yeah. But uh, something, something a little bit more fruity will go with, with that. And, and I, I really like uh, Chilean Carmenere, I think it's really good. It's kind of difficult to tell because you can't you can't judge a price point on them because they're still sort of discovering their price point. So you can get like a really good one for like ten dollars, hmm. and you can get a really bad one for like thirty. So it's it's very difficult. That was one of the another question I was going to have in wine is it, is it typically the more expensive the better? Yeah, because I, I while that's typically the case with cigars, it's not always yeah. the case. Yeah, it's not always the case with wine either. If it's if it's a newer region, it's hard to tell. Right, uh, like like Chile is, and Chile is actually not that new. But uh, until the last couple of years, they consumed all their wine uh, in the country, and and they've just started kind of exporting a lot of it. So for that, that's hard. There are places where I think it's severely overpriced for just the name, and Napa in particular. Napa produces great wine, but you pay for the Napa name. Yeah, there's and- a. Go ahead. There's a Chilean wine, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, I really like. That's like nine dollars a bottle. Uh, yeah, Cafiero del Diablo. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can you can get really great stuff from Chile. Yeah, uh, they they've got super interesting microclimates too. I, I like northern Chile better, but uh, there even in southern Chile there there's some really interesting, just interesting microclimates. The way that it, the way that the the ocean interacts with uh, the coastline there produces very unusual things. So you end up getting like like fogs and stuff like that in the morning. And then it blows off and has like outstanding sunshine for the rest of the day. So even though they're, even though like in the North part, they're like close to the equator, um, they don't get as much sunlight as you would think. And that helps uh, make them a little bit more mild. Interesting. A lot of yeah. uh, shade grown tobacco grown in Ecuador because of their cloud cover. Yeah. Yep. And actually yeah. there's Ecuadorian wine too, but they consume almost all of it locally oh. and it's supposed to be pretty good. Yeah, I would imagine if they're not, if they don't want to share with anybody. Yeah. Well, well, then you get places like Brazil, they grow wine and they consume it all locally and it's terrible from what, from what I understand. I think there's a couple of places that they make okay 
um, wine, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, to kind of the, to the price point thing, it's, it's sometimes it's difficult. I would say up until about a hundred dollars a bottle, it is, um, usually you're going to get a much higher quality wine, the higher price you go. Mm-hmm. There are exceptions. Uh, for example, you can get, so, uh, th- like this is a tip for Bordeaux wines. So if you like Bordeaux and you like a little more aggressive Bordeaux, you can get a uh, Madoc which is on the left bank, I believe. Yeah, left bank of Bordeaux. And they are going to be a little more aggressive, a little more interesting. They're also cheaper because it is um, it is a newer region compared to the rest of Bordeaux. It used to be a swamp and they drained it. And um, But I mean, newer meaning it's like from the 1600s. So uh, it, it's a little bit different. They don't have as much prestige in the opinion of a lot of the French. And it's also situated right there so that they can ship out directly to England. And they make wines that I think are a little bit uh, more appealing to the American palate, a lot more bold flavors that are more recognizable. And uh, the reason I think they do it that way is because their main export country used to be England. And English and Americans have similar palates when it comes to wine, at least, and similar in a lot of beers and stuff like that. There's a reason we drink IPAs and they invented IPAs. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's, I mean, one way to wait, one way to think about it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Slappy, do you have any uh, more uh, pairing questions? Uh, no, no. We're, you want to, we got yeah, some? Let's, yeah, let's do the uh, free market success story. And I think, you know, it hasn't happened yet, but I, I think it's going to be a raging success. I think so. So, <laughs> Jacob, do you want to talk about uh, Childerberg? I do. So, Childerberg, June 8th and 9th in, in uh, Llano County, Texas. Uh, or it's it's two L's, so I don't know if it's Lalano or Iano, but in Spanish, it makes an E sound. So, I think it's Iano County. Uh, but it's on Lake Buchanan. It's going to be a fabulous, liberty-oriented lake party. Uh, lots of people coming down. We are... Probably by the time this airs, we will have no more campsites uh, available with our group, but you are more than welcome to come down. There's a town nearby that has hotels. There's also other campsites that may have spaces available that you you can um, camp at, uh, but it is, it's going to be a blast. We're, we're going to have a lot of – there's some stuff that I can't really announce, but uh, there's a lot of cool stuff going. One of, the, one of the things I can announce is that there is going to be the Childerberg Wine Van – driven by Mason, my partner in crime on Tasting Anarchy. And he is going to be driving all us drunks around to the three wineries that are right there along along the lake and just to try out some Texas wine. Uh, I've had one of the wineries wine, and it's very good. Uh, the other two I haven't had, but I've, I've had uh, communication with them, and they seem very pleasant and uh, are looking forward to us coming by. So we've got just lots of fun stuff going Car's got an, a couple of ideas working too. And after we meet our fundraising goal, the remainder of the funds are going to be split 50-50 with uh, freeross.org. Awesome. Yeah, so. that's, uh, that's, a, that's a worthy cause. And uh, yeah. I, will, I will be doing a small fundraiser down there. I will, as I mentioned before, I will be bringing a fruitcake. Yep. And uh, we'll do a 50-50 <clears throat> drawing or something. Yeah. Whereas if you can guess the weight of the fruitcake – you, you win. That sounds, I, that sounds like a good plan. 50-50 yes. raffles are like a libertarian standard. When I ran the Virginia Beach Libertarian Party, we used to do 50, 50, 50 raffles all the time. Oh, nice. It was like the, it was like the best way to make money. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, that's awesome. I, I am 
really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's and, it's. Uh, I really think it's going to be a blast. Like, if you guys are on the fence about it, or you or you're kind of like, eh, I don't know if I want to go. Just just follow at Childerberg on Twitter and just see the interactions for the people who are going because everybody that is going, it is they are all such a blast, and they're just it's so hilarious to be. Yeah, that's that's, with everybody. that's why I'm like because libertarians, you know, we all know we have the tendency to to get a little bit annoying about yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. Everyone that's been involved with the child and interacting with the Childerberg Twitter handle and everything, everyone's focused on just having a good time and yeah. having fun. So I yes. think that's going to translate to the to the event and I think it's going to be an absolute blast. I think so too. I think there's there's kind of and you know I used to be part of the 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 butthurt libertarian generation. Who hasn't been? Uh, yeah. yeah and and I think that maybe the like the libertarian movement is sort of coming through that uh, with with the addition of like new leaders like Dave Smith, who's a comedian, and Bob Murphy, who's just a very lighthearted, nice guy, and and even people like on on uh, on like the Tasting Anarchy level, who are just like just funny guys, like Mr. Sue is is very funny, and and some of the smaller podcasts, it's just people people want to they're tired of being stressed out all the time. And they just kind of want to have fun. And it's also the solidification of internet culture around libertarianism, I think, has made uh, it just a lot more fun than it was back in like 2008 when everything was offensive and I was butthurt by everything because Ron Paul wasn't winning. <laughs> Actually, I, I wasn't a Ron Paul fan in eight, 2008. I, I didn't get on board until like 2013 for Ron Paul. I was, yeah, I, I, was, was a, I was a Bob Barr fan. So I was butthurt <laughs> that nobody liked Bob Barr. <laughs> <laughs> so That's awesome. Uh, I it's been I've come a long way since my first introduction to Liberty. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'd be same. embarrassed to tell you my early twenties. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, but I was in charge of the of the Virginia Beach Young Libertarians during that time, so I was a leader of the the group there, and I was like basically just a regular status who was upset with the Republicans. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, that's how I started a lot of going into libertarianism is just, you know, I was a Republican that didn't like Republicans anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's basically me. Yeah. So, uh, all right. The show notes page for this episode is mcflugel.com slash 142, uh, where you'll be able to find links to all the stuff that Jacob's doing. So Jacob, do you want to, uh, plug whatever you got to sure. plug? Yep. You can follow us at tasting anarchy on Twitter. Also follow Childerberg at Childerberg on Twitter, because I think that's a, uh, that's a fun thing. I'm always happy to receive emails for, from people for either Childerberg or for tasting anarchy, t- tasting anarchy at gmail.com. Uh, and you can also visit either one of the sites, uh, Childerberg.com or tasting anarchy.com and just check out what we have going on. Awesome, man. Uh, so yeah, we really appreciate you coming on. You could you could stick around when we're sure. uh, when we hit and we hit it off. Uh, all but, right. Uh, yeah. Also, uh, yeah. I guess that's it. That's all we cool. got to plug. Just Jacob stuff. So, all right. Thanks for thanks for listening, everyone, and we will catch you next week. Yep. Peace. Stay free. <laughs>